Welcome to Another Way, the podcast of Equal Citizens. I'm Jason Harrow, the Chief Counsel and Executive Director of Equal Citizens, and I am pleased to be joined live and in person by Adam Eichen, our Campaigns Manager. Hey, Adam. Hey, Jason. How's it going? Going great. It's great to have you here in L.A. in our West Coast studio. Um, Today, we've got uh, the first of a couple kind of year-end episodes we're going to do. We're going to recap uh, the state of some recent democracy reforms today, talk about uh, some of the things that that happened at the ballot box in 2019. Of course, uh, we do this all because once a year, well, more than than once a year, but but in the fall and November, they're usually among the most important elections, and we just had a wave. Um, and there were some really interesting developments on the democracy reform stage. So we want to talk about that. And then we'll also have a kind of year end recap and awards show coming at you. So uh, I'm excited for that one that that will be in your feed later. Speaking of your feed, before we get started, you can find us at equalcitizens.us slash another way. And we have a Patreon page. If you want to support this free no ads podcast, um, patreon.com slash equal citizens is where you can make a small donation and help us offset some of the costs of this podcast. Um, we promise there will be special episodes coming also. Uh, the folks here at Equal Citizens, including our founder, Larry Lessig, has been on a crazy travel schedule, but we promise he wants to get to some Ask Me Anything episodes. We want to do those. We want to bring you those. Um, and you will get access to those first if you are a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash equal citizens. Okay, so Adam. You came out here to Los Angeles for something called the MOFA Awards. Why don't we talk about that? Because there was a really interesting discussion of some democracy-related issues. Um, And then we'll uh, update a couple of our cases and dive into what happened in November on the democracy reform front. So, Adam, why are you here in L.A.? Well, we were invited to present, uh, not the awards, but we were invited to educate attendees at an award show uh, here in Los Angeles uh, about democracy dollars, the program in Seattle, that uh, public financing system that has been so successful there in which every voter gets $25 vouchers to give to eligible candidates. But taking it back a bit, the award show was really quite something, Jason, wasn't it? It was it was an award show, but not exactly a, a traditional award show. It was um, an event that was presenting awards for the worst people in the United States in terms of the environment and other issues. So among the recipients were... Uh, Exxon, I believe Exxon won an award, and and BlackRock, and um, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, for different themes, for different uh, uh, parts of U.S. policy that they've been passing, uh, you know, bad laws in regards to. Um, so, so Jason, I, I don't know if there are any in particular you want to highlight, but you know, I, I will just say for our listeners, the funniest part of it is obviously, uh, you know, Exxon didn't come in and, and accept the award, uh, so they had comedians come in and impersonate the, the award winners, and it was it was quite funny. Yeah, and and we're a PG thirteen or a PG, I should say, related rated podcast here, so. Uh, I won't say the name of the award show. It's called the MOFAs or the Mother Effer Awards is another way of putting it. And and the idea was exactly to give awards to the people who are doing sort of the least for Mother Earth. And um, so it was environmental focus. But my takeaway, Adam, was that people are starting to connect environmental issues to campaign finance and to money in politics, right? That's why we were there. That's why we were featured. That's why Larry Lessig, the founder of Equal Citizens, gave the Lifetime Achievement Award to Mitch McConnell because as the comedian spoofing Mitch McConnell got up and basically said, he said, look, here's the reason why we're here. I I don't care what you all in the audience think, right? I have turned over the legislation to corporations. I have turned, and why? Because that's who I raise money from and and how I get reelected. 
So that made the point in a really unique and funny way. It was really a thrill to be honored. It was great to see Larry up on the big stage introducing this award to Mitch McConnell in his uh, tuxedo yeah. uh, by, by video. So um, that uh, th- thanks to the folks who did that. And uh, we'll, I'm sure that, that these awards will continue because there are certainly some folks who are not taking environmental policy seriously. But uh, the more we can both highlight that issue but also link it to the problems of our democracy. I, th- I think that was really, really encouraging. Right. And, uh, and a couple things, Jason, that I want to add is, one, I mean, the award show, it was packed. I mean, it was a, it was a smallish theater, but there were probably 300 people there. Uh, and people really got into it. They really understood it. And and the second point I want to make is that the, the organizers of the event, the ones who were who did the scripts and, and did the little videos before the presentation of each awards, I mean, they really took due diligence to make the connections uh, of you know from the issues or the the lack of progress on environmental issues to money and politics. Uh, Geo Group One, for example, for their their work promoting detention centers on the border, uh, and, and the video introducing the award uh, made it very clear that their, their money and politics is, is a huge driver of some of the the policies on the border in terms of private prisons. Um, and and the audience got it. I mean, it wasn't so you know it wasn't so opaque that people understood that part of the problems in you know in making U.S. policy right now is because corporate interests and billionaires profit from those policies and spend massive campaign contributions, spend money on lobbying. Um, the NRA was another winner, and, and clearly that that link is is pretty obvious. Um, and so that was really cool that the the people who put on the award show really made that explicit. And then and that was really the reason why we we were there is because at the very end at the after party we had the booth. Uh, where we actually had physical copies of the democracy vouchers that Seattle used in 2017 and 2019. And we were there to kind of show people that, yeah, everything you heard there was depressing. And yes, money and politics plays a huge role in the shaping of legislation in in our our country. But we have solutions to actually fix this problem, uh, or at least uh, mitigate it. Uh, That if you give every voter uh, a chance to be a donor, that that can democratize influence and really change the game. Yeah, that's right. And, and and that message certainly resonated. Okay, so we could talk about these really fun awards for a while. We could talk about Seattle democracy dollars for a while. And we'll get back to that indeed. And I know, Adam, you're working on a long term project with that, too. But in the meantime, let's move on because there's a lot to talk about. I, I want to quickly before we dive into the results from last month, I want to quickly update some folks who are following one of our uh, uh, topic areas for cases. We have two cases that are now at the Supreme Court about the role of presidential electors and whether they can vote for candidates who did not win the popular vote in that state. Some people may know that there was a movement in December of 2016 to uh, have presidential electors in the Electoral College deny Donald Trump a majority, and that would throw the election to the House, and perhaps that could have avoided the election of Donald Trump, whatever folks think of that. There's this interesting and outstanding and important legal issue about whether that's legal or not. And the Supreme Court has two cases that were involved in on uh, its desk now. There were conflicting decisions from the lower court about this issue of elector freedom. And so we'll, we'll do a fuller podcast in January about this, but I just want to let people know those should be considered by the Supreme Court on January 10th, and we should have an answer about whether the Supreme Court will hear them soon um, sometime in mid-January. So for all of those waiting, I don't think we'll get a Christmas present, a holiday present, and and hear that the Supreme Court is definitely taking it, but soon after the holidays and when the Supreme Court justices and their staff get back to work, we should know that. Okay. Now, on to the 
perhaps more fun stuff. There were a few, you know, really nice victories. Nothing on the ballot in 2019 was, I don't think, earth-shattering for democracy, but the march certainly continues forward. Um, There were some really nice victories. One minor setback. Adam, where do you want to start with what happened for democracy reform at the ballot in 2019? Well, I actually want to start for a quick second just prefacing this conversation by one of the really encouraging trends in the democracy movement has been the successes at the ballot in the last three years. Beginning with 2015, where you have a couple ballot initiatives, Seattle passes the democracy dollars, Maine fixes their public finance system. Uh, And in 2016, you have a slew of ballot initiatives, many of which almost all of them passed, uh, and in 2018 as well. I mean, in in total, you're you're looking at dozens in the past three years of ballot initiatives pertaining specifically to democracy reform passing when voters have the chance to weigh in. Uh, So that's been a really encouraging sign. And these range from gerrymandering reform to voting rights to money in politics. So this is the trend. This is all contextualized within the last three years of when voters get to weigh in on democracy issues, they do, and they overwhelmingly generally pass them. So 2019 was no exception to this. There were a handful of, of, I agree, I mean, nothing earth-shattering, but very important incremental reforms that will make our democracy better. And many of them were localized because, again, this was a local election cycle. Uh, but, I mean, a couple of, of the ones that I wanted to mention was, well, first of all, we had in New York City passed overwhelmingly uh, ranked choice voting for special elections and primary elections. That, Jason, that's a big victory for the ranked choice voting movement. Uh, over 8 million Americans live in New York City. Uh, and so I think that will more than double the number of people who live in or will li- eventually live in uh, a, play- a jurisdiction with ranked choice voting. So that, that's a massive increase. Yeah. And, and can you just explain a little bit for, for those that, that don't know? We'll, we'll assume that many listeners are at least a little familiar with ranked choice voting. That, that sort of is uh, what it's described as. That is, when voters use a ranked choice voting ballot, they get to rank their candidates in order of preference, one first choice, second choice, third choice. And then there's a bunch of instant runoffs to make sure that the ultimate winner gets over 50 percent support. So that's kind of what's going on there rather than just getting one choice. Um, but but can you say you mentioned that it was only for special elections and primary elections? You know, some people were a little bit bothered by the fact that ultimately during like the final mayoral election, there will not be a ranked choice ballot in New York. I am nonetheless encouraged by it. Why, why don't you say a little bit about that that sort of nuance and, and the fact that primary elections, you know, as, as you might talk about, yeah, Adam, you're from New York and, and live there. Um, I, I think this is a really big deal, even if the final general election will not be with, with used uh, ranked choice voting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is what happens or, or the most consequential par- uh, elections in, in many kind of single party or one party dominated jurisdictions is the primary. Uh, and it's in the primary where they're usually heavily contested and where winners often have well below 50%. I mean, you saw this in the, there was a public advocate race uh, primary earlier in the year where the winner had, I think, around 30-something percent. Um, you know, those are the kind of races that are hyper-competitive, and, and rightfully so. Primary should be hyper-competitive. You know, they should be competitive. Uh, and so, that, and that's really the ultimate winner from the Democratic primary in New York City is the one who will end up winning uh, almost always in the general election in New York City. So for me, uh, the special election and the primary election were the most important offices to co- cover with ranked choice voting. So I, I see this as nothing less than a major success for the ranked choice voting movement. Yeah, me too. And and I think one point uh, is worth emphasizing also that that, of course, we at Equal Citizens really think that ranked choice voting would make a difference everywhere. But I think this 
uh, result in New York highlights that in many ways, ranked choice voting is a better fit for primaries in the American system, right? Because um, with, with a few exceptions, the general election mostly features a Republican candidate and a Democratic candidate who are overwhelmingly likely to win. And then some other minor or third parties that often get portrayed to act as spoilers and, you know, just given the realities, often uh, have very little chance of prevailing. And so uh, there's sort of only a top two choice anyway in the general election. But primaries, as you mentioned, Adam, often have, you know, up to a dozen viable candidates in some races. And so having voters uh, really prioritize them can totally change the way the campaign is run. It can change who is running for them. Uh, it, it can, And then it can change the way voters feel about the race. It, I think that can be really transformative. So I'm super encouraged by that. And, and, and to be clear, right, I mean, the in the general election, it's, it's, it's imperative too. You know, Maine, you see in the second congressional district, once Maine passed ranked choice voting for good in 2018, it went into effect and, and changed the results in a more democratic, small d democratic way for Maine's con, uh, second congressional district, where sure, there, there, there were two main party candidates running, uh, but two other additional kind of independent candidates. And and they did, they were the, you know, they took about 8% of the vote. Uh, and when those votes were reallocated, the ultimate winner was the Democrat congressman, now Congressman Golden. Uh, and, and he won once those votes were reallocated. So, I mean, it, it works for all elections, but I agree in many jurisdictions, especially my my state right now, you know, home state right now of, of Massachusetts, where there's a real effort to try and pass ranked choice voting, uh, it would be much more consequential for the primary elections because, indeed, that is where a lot of the competition, the important competition is. Um, so, so nonetheless, big victory. Uh, a couple other uh, more minor ones. Uh, San Francisco, Jason, passed a um, ballot question that increased transparency in elections. It had a couple more campaign finance restrictions. Obviously, great development for those elections. East Hampton, Massachusetts, uh, passed ranked choice voting. So another ranked choice voting win this election cycle. Syracuse, New York passed an independent redistricting commission. So that's taking the power to draw the lines of the districts in that municipality um, away from politicians and into the hands of uh, independent committee. Uh, we at equal, citizens, at equal Citizens like that model. The best way to draw the lines, uh, you know, apart from something like the Fair Representation Act, which is a little more extreme as, in terms of a reform, uh, is to just to take the, the power to draw the lines out of the hands of politicians. So we love to see that. Uh, Jason, I know you want to talk a little bit about uh, what Maine did, which was an interesting question of access to signature gathering, uh, which may seem really small, but opens up some very interesting questions about the reform community and, you know, all the different ways we can increase the ability of people to participate in our democracy. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like this one a lot. Um, this this is a ballot measure that amended the main state constitution because the state constitution currently requires people to sign petitions for ballot measures with original signatures. And because that's directly in the Constitution, it's essentially impossible for the legislature to do anything to assist people who cannot give original signatures or signatures that would be considered original signatures because they have uh, disabilities or uh, otherwise unable physically to you know, put pen to paper. And so what the uh, th- this ballot measure did was that it authorized the state legislature to eventually pass a law, and I'm sure they will do so quickly. It will be uncontroversial, and it got 75% support at the ballot, to 
permit people with disabilities uh, to do electronic signatures or some form of alternative signature so that it, they, they don't need to give an uh, original signature. And, I, you know, I think this highlights some of the vexing parts of our democracy, but why paying attention to both the big and small of democracy reform is important because, you know, so obviously that kind of provision in a state constitution seems innocuous at first glance, but that locks people in in a way that can have unintended consequences and that can really have downstream effects for citizen participation. And sometimes we have very inefficient systems, right? You would, um, as this ballot measure shows, you know, it, it's common sense to enable people who cannot physically sign to have an alternative mechanism for signing. But it turns out it, you know, requires a ballot measure, it requires money to uh, put forth a campaign, it requires lawyers to get it on the ballot, um, it requires people to gather signatures from people who can't, who don't even have that, potentially uh, are, are unable to do it, to get enough of those just to put it on the ballot. So what, what I like about it, though, is that ultimately even these uh, obstacles can be surmounted. Right. And, and they can be surmounted at a reasonable cost and with a focused effort. And so, uh, I, you know, I just want to want to give some kudos to the folks who were in support of main question, too. Um, and good for them for fixing their constitution. I'm sure there are many constitutional provisions in the 50 various state constitutions that uh, have, have little quirks like this that are just sitting there that are making lives more difficult for people. And to the extent we can find them and efficiently and economically correct them through the democratic process, you know, that that's a win for everyone. Right. And you may think, well, this only applies to a handful of people. But, but you know, as a democracy reform organization, you know, our job is to fight to make sure every vote matters, whether that's because of the color of your skin, your gender, or disability status. Um, I mean, these are all things that there are many different barriers to, to exercise in the franchise, and every single one of them is important and, and can be overcome uh, with, with a little bit of uh, grassroots efforts. Um, and so, Jason, let's talk a little bit about Albuquerque, because this is, this is the, the, the one real mixed bag of the night. So Albuquerque had two ballot questions. The first improved the current public financing system. That one passed. This is a marginal increase to make it more viable. But the second one was the more novel, which was to implement a, si a system of democracy dollars, democracy vouchers, just like we were talking about that they have in Seattle, where every resident in Seattle gets four $25 vouchers. This proposal wasn't quite as, as, as robust as Seattle's. Instead, it would just create democracy vouchers that, in which every voter gets one $25 voucher. That one barely failed by a sliver. Obviously... That is sad. Jason, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's sad. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's funny that and, and perhaps totally unpredictable that Albuquerque, which was, you know, kind of recently rose to prominence, I guess, as the site of Breaking Bad, has become something of a testing ground for the democracy reform movement, right? So we have seen fights over ranked choice voting there and a very narrow loss by folks in Albuquerque to get ranked choice voting adopted for this uh, municipal election. I think their neighbors in Santa Fe use ranked choice voting. Is, is that Adam or, or right, Adam, or recently passed it? And now we have this kind of mixed bag on, um, you know, 
increasing the efficacy of the current public financing program with a very narrow defeat. Uh, I think they lost 51-49, right, on, on democracy dollars. And I guess it just shows that, you know, what, the, the focused attention can make a difference, but people do think of these things differently, right? And they need to be educated about different types of solutions to money in politics, to ranked choice voting, to polarization. And it's hard to be first, right? It, it, it's hard to be first. Seattle went first and... So far, they're basically only. And so getting that second jurisdiction, getting over 50%, getting from 49, 49 to 50 and, and over to 51 is, is going to be tough. Even in a city that, that had uh, you know, an electorate, there was a, the, the results show there were just a certain percentage of people who said, yes, I want to improve the current public financing system, but I don't want to go the additional step of something novel like a democracy dollar. And it, you know, novelty is tough. But, but I still think it's encouraging, right? It got 49%. And, you know, the more people see that public financing can be successful, the more people hear about their neighbors in Santa Fe using ranked choice voting, I think it, it you know, these things build on themselves. So it was just a first shot. And, and, and but that's my takeaway. Right. I, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, one of the things is that the, the actual campaign window for this was quite short. Uh, I don't know all the details, but I know it got on the ballot late and that there, you know, there was a strong, robust effort, but it, it was a short effort and it wasn't, you know, a years long campaigning season. And, and so I agree. I think a lot of this is iterative, especially when it comes to something like vouchers. Uh, you know, I want to bring it back to what we were doing at the award ceremony. As I said, that we, we went to this award ceremony in, in Los Angeles. And the reason we were there is because we wanted to educate people about these vouchers. And we had the physical vouchers. And when you and I were talking to attendees about it, you know, it took about 90 seconds to maybe three minutes before you could visibly see the light turn on. You could see their eyes light up. And, you know, people got it. People got the importance of it, but it, but it took a little bit of time before it was totally salient about why you would be giving uh, democracy vouchers and, and what that means in terms of political power and pooling those, those vouchers together. And so it takes, you know, these campaigns, these novel democracy uh, campaigns take time to, and a lot of organizing to really make the point salient of how this would increase your voice as a voter, as someone who's not a max out donor. Uh, in the political process. And so I don't, yeah, this is a loss, but it's one that I don't see as, you know, fatal to the movement by any means, because I think with more organizing, this really amazing model of public financing is going to spread. And I know, Jason, that, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project now uh, with a colleague of mine, Nick Nyhart, who has been long been in, in the money and politics space and with a focus on public financing. And we're going through the data. And it's very encouraging from Seattle. I mean, Seattle's experimented vouchers has been really, really promising. And, and that system will likely be fixed. And I'll do a deeper dive on a future podcast on that. But, you know, as the idea becomes more and more salient, we have four presidential candidates currently uh, supporting vouchers. And, and formerly, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand did as well. I see this idea. As as you know, it's going to expand, uh, and just like with ranked choice voting, as you were saying, you know, Maine became the first statewide to, uh, jurisdiction to do it, and and that's why you know, for example, Massachusetts passing it potentially on the ballot in 2020 will be so critical because the first one is super hard, but the second state, the second jurisdiction to go after it is is equally important in some respects because that's what builds the momentum to make it a broader reform. 
Yeah, no, I, I, th- th- that's exactly right, and and so we'll just kind of watch the space for for what the movement for democracy vouchers do. We'll be, uh, you know, we'll we'll have a role as as we can, and we'll try and and make sure that listeners, you're you're aware of what's going on, so you can help out uh, wherever it's needed. And I, I just want to say before we wrap up about the elections, I, I have to give um, a little bit of a shout out to the other big democracy things. It wasn't a, a ballot question or a ballot initiative, but you know the governor's race in Kentucky. The winner was Bashir, the Democrat, who you know besides partisan affiliation, you know partisan affiliation side, he ran on restoring voting rights to those convicted of, uh, of felonies. And in, in Kentucky, it's one of the few states in which you lose the right to vote forever if you're convicted of felony. Um, and so he's pledged that as governor, as governor elect now, uh, he will restore that through the executive power. That's, that's a major victory for voting rights. And of course, uh, um, you know, the Democrats taking control of, of Virginia uh, also on the, on the promise of, of potentially dealing with money in politics and voting rights. We'll see what they do, especially when it comes to gerrymandering, Jason. That will be the thing to watch because now that the Democrats have unified control of a state that was formerly gerrymandered, will they continue their promise to enact independent redistricting commission? Or will now that they have unified control through the new census... Does that mean that they'll forego that commitment to reform so that they can gerrymander the maps next cycle? Yeah, I mean, gi- giving up the power that you've got is not something politicians are good at. So that pressure has to come. Um, they, they have to know that they're setting an example. Uh, you know, activists have to be on that. And, and we've got to watch that space closely for sure because that's, you know, uh, that history shows and just human nature reveals that there are always justifications for doing something, you know, tomorrow. Just keep doing it the way you've been doing it. And and especially to counteract what I think many Democrats view as Republicans penchant for doing a lot of gerrymandering, the Democrats may say we should do it too, right? And and they probably have a license to do it in some ways with the Supreme Court's decision in Rucho, or at least the Supreme Court's made clear that the federal courts are not going to get involved in resolving any disputes. So does that now unleash the unified Democratic control in Virginia to marginalize the Republicans as much as they can. We shall see. And and there is, Jason, a real amazing effort in Virginia right now to hold those newly elected politicians' feet to the fire. Yeah. Um, so it's not as if there's no effort there. There is. If you're in Virginia, check it out. Uh, a lot of great work being done there. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so we move from the uh, success of local elections or the mostly success yet another year to the mess of the presidential campaign. So in, we haven't updated the presidential campaign in a few weeks on this podcast, but the uh, several candidates have now dropped out since we kind of last checked in. Steve Bullock, who we've talked about before on this podcast, Adam, because he ostensibly ran on an anti-corruption platform that kind of boiled down to just we want lots of disclosure and we want to kick the cokes out of Manhattan or not man, not Manhattan listeners, Montana, a uh, little little bit different. Um, and, you know, that message didn't really seem to resonate. Who knows if it was the message or the messenger or the amount of money he had or the fact that he was still actually the governor in Montana and couldn't give it the time necessary. But, um, you know, he dropped out and, and it's unfortunate in, in the sense that he at least put the issue of corruption and, and money in politics sort of at the forefront of a, of a campaign, even if it wasn't always a message that kind of resonated with us hardcore folks who have been in the movement. Um, recently, also, we have to wave goodbye to Senator Kamala Harris of California. Adam, you have some thoughts on her departure. Yeah, I mean, I 
you know, she was always ranked towards the bottom in our POTUS One rankings because she never talked about these issues. Her website was pretty barren on the on these questions of democracy. I mean, there were a couple of of pretty milk toast mentions. I mean, Citizens United and some vague language about an election day holiday and and I think fighting for automatic voter registration. But she really never centered her campaign around it. And I thought this was so interesting, Jason, and, and kind of, you know, it, it really rubbed me the wrong way in terms of, you know, it was only towards the end of her campaign, once she had started running out of money and after, uh, you know, uh, Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg, once Bloomberg jumped in, the two billionaires really started spending a lot of money in this presidential race, that she began talking about these issues, that she began to... Uh, you know, really attack a, the, the campaign si- finance system that allows for billionaires to self-fund their campaigns. And in her her message on Medium announcing her uh, her withdrawal from the race, she said, and I quote, my campaign for president simply doesn't have the financial resources we need to continue. I am not a billionaire. I can't fund my own campaign. And as the campaign has gone on, it's become harder and harder to raise the money we need to compete. You know, Jason... The solution there is obviously to fight for democracy reforms. It's to it's to fight for public financing so that you don't have to be a billionaire, that you don't have to have extensive uh, you know networks of of wealthy individuals to fund your campaign. Uh, the answer is to fight for a system in which that is not the reason to stay or drop out of the race. It's the ideas or the support in the polls. And you'd think that you know someone who understands that would 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 have really predicated her campaign on, on an issue like public financing. And my only hope now is now that she's really experienced running a race in which she can't compete financially, that she, maybe she becomes a champion now for public financing of elections. I know she was a co-sponsor of HR1, but you know that, that doesn't signal necessarily support for public financing. So we, we don't really know where she stands. But if there's one lesson for her to take from this, it's that we need campaign finance reform. And, and her slogan of the solution is just to overturn Citizens United, that's just not enough. Senator, that we need a system that actually empowers voters, not just puts limits on what millionaires and billionaires and corporations can spend in politics. Yeah. Speaking of millionaires and billionaires, uh, there are some new entrants. Uh, Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, is in the race. Haven't heard much from him on this issue or heard much really either way since he entered the race. But I think the higher profile candidate is Michael Bloomberg, the former three-term mayor of Manhattan and billionaire founder of Bloomberg LP, um, who is now spending, uh, as the New York Times has reported, probably more money than any presidential candidate has ever spent. And it's only his first week of campaigns. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that he if I, if I have this correct, I think he spent the, the largest amount of money on an ad buy in a given amount of time in the history of any campaign. Yeah, uh, I think it was over 30 million dollars on one kind of slew of ad buys. Uh, that's a lot of money. And it's all self-funded. Exactly. So you know, the, the, I, I think that folks in the democracy reform movement, um, or maybe I should only speak for myself, I have mixed feelings about something like this, right? On the one hand, we like the fact that he is not beholden to super PACs. He is not beholden to corporate interest, right? He is among the richest people on the planet. And so he can drown out. He he does not need to be holden to the Exxon Mobil lobby to lobbyists to super. Right? He's he's got more than enough money to just drop unlimited money on his own campaign and do what he thinks is right. And maybe there's some value in that, right, Adam? I mean, but but on the other hand, of course, the way that he earned his money and the fact that he is basically trying to use his wealth, some might 
uh, say to sort of just purchase an election. Indeed, the 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 timing of his run and the way he came in are sort of in in some ways inconsistent with a stated desire to like really run a campaign and engage people, right? It's 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 more in the nature of let me just buy this office, right? I didn't I didn't want to spend 2019 running around the country. I wanted to spend it doing whatever I wanted to do, and now I'm ready, you know, to 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 enter and please give me some votes. Here's a bunch of money to explain for for me to explain what I'm doing. So, I don't know. I have two minds about the impact of of Bloomberg on the race and of course his platform on democracy reform issues. He is uniquely positioned to try and clean up a race and try and say, "Hey, I'm not distorted by super PACs. That's part of my pitch to people. Shouldn't we allow more people to do that? But on the other hand, he seems to have said, well, if you wanted to run as a billionaire, you should have gone and made a billion dollars before you started to, to get into politics, right? That's kind of the gist of some recent comments of his. So I don't know. what what Are you as split on, on sort of his entry as I am? Well, I, I think that my biggest problem is just about access. It's about, you know, the issues in our country, you know, in terms of our representation and democracy is about who even has access not just to give money but to be a viable candidate. And there does seem to me something profoundly unfair about because you have access to money, you can become a viable candidate, that that the access to money makes you a a political contender. That there seems to be something there that that rubs me really the wrong way. But that, that said, you know, I think that what Bloomberg's entrance to me does is it, it, oh, it, it, it opens up a conversation about Buckley, Buckley v. Vallejo, the original Supreme Court case that uh, really set the the modern uh, campaign finance infrastructure. The Supreme Court upheld contribution limits uh, directly to candidates and got rid of uh, limits on independent expenditures. And they also got rid of any sort of limitations on the ability to self-fund. And so I think Bloomberg's entry really does actually open up a, a very interesting intellectual space for reformers to potentially reconsider or at least question Buckley once again. And some candidates like Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders, and others, you know, say that overturning Citizens United isn't enough, but we also have to return back to Buckley. So I I think that at least intellectually speaking, I think Bloomberg's run, at least regardless of whether or not normatively it's a good thing or a bad thing, I just think it's it's interesting from the perspective of now we have potentially uh, four billionaires, depending upon how you uh, count them, who have run or, or are running, and that includes you know Donald Trump. I don't know how you want to uh, assess the president's wealth. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, and then Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, was also flirting with an independent run. Uh, and, and so I think that there's an interesting question here about the ability to turn wealth directly into a candidacy for yourself as opposed to kind of the traditional narrative of uh, billionaires buying elections uh, you know, on behalf of their own self-interest but buying election, uh, other politicians. So I think there's an interesting intellectual space for reformers to maybe mobilize more people around um, kind of – in some respects, the absurdity of that system. Yeah, no, that, it, 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 it is a good point. It, it is absurd. I mean I, I guess I'll just add that the – you know, uh, we we live in a capitalist economy, right? And so the proposition that are billionaires more likely to do X? Is it easier to do X when you're a billionaire, right? Whether that's run for office, right? You sort of started off your remarks by lamenting the fact that, boy, isn't it a shame that, you know, it seems like almost a prerequisite to have a ton of money to run for president. Shouldn't we just pick the best candidates? Um, and you know, it's often easier to do things when, when one has a lot of money, like that's just the nature of our system. So, uh, I, I think that, that Bloomberg's entry really to me 
it, it will be about can he truly use it for good, right? Because many people were attracted to Trump's wealth in terms of how uncorrupted he appeared to be. Right. And, and I don't think he's governed that way. I think he's governed in an, an extremely corrupt way, in part because he doesn't like spending his own money. Well, we don't know how much money he has, and I'm not going to question it all. I don't want to be sued on this podcast. But what we do know is that he kind of played with portraying himself as funding his own campaign. But of course, we know he did not do that in 2016, and he certainly is not doing that in 2020. Um, but people are attracted to that, right? When he, and he ran on that. Right. He is not beholden to these outside interests. He alone can drain the swamp. Right. He doesn't need to go groveling to the big corporate interests and lobbyists like Jeb Bush did that, that he laughed at. Right. Indeed, he famously portrayed himself as one of those very people to, to, to politicians of both parties. So it, the, I think we are at a turning point here where what are we going to see from Bloomberg? Right. Are we going to see the the sort of. Uh, fact that that he's going to tout his independence and say, I am going to use that independence to work on your behalf and to clean up the system, to make it so that everyone can run independently, right? To make it so that not only billionaires, because we cannot have a Congress, Adam, of 535 billionaires. That, 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 that's not possible, right? I mean, I know, I think that g given the way the stock market has gone, I, I don't know if Forbes has expanded beyond 400 or something, how many, there may in fact be 535 billionaires in, in the country. I'm not 100% sure, but surely not all of them are going to populate our Congress. And even if they wanted to, I don't think that anyone would agree that would be a good thing. So if that's the case, what is Bloomberg going to do, right? How is he going to sort of uh, give that message of independence to people and, and create meaningful reform? so that people can act as independently as he thinks he can act? Right, I mean, it's That's very, the question. It's very similar to kind of the, the model that Tom Steyer is taking, right? I mean, Tom Steyer, the billionaire, uh, who's done a lot of political activism in the past six plus years, uh, I mean, he's running in, in, in a similar vein, but more explicit right now. I mean, and so we'll, we'll see where, where, you know, how Bloomberg's platform develops. But I mean, it's something that Steyer is doing. I mean, he's on the debate stage now. We'll... we'll quibble in a later episode about Tom Steyer's reforms that he's proposing. But, you know, I think that the, I think what you're getting at is that there is a, a real desire among the electorate, whether or not it's Trump's, you know, I can't be bought, drain the swamp, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, the system is rigged, you know, rigged, you know, I don't take super PAC money, I don't take corporate money, and, you know, my average donation, a small donation is, a, you know, I think it's now $19, or something like that's under the $27 that he had in 2016, or someone like, uh, you know, Bloomberg being, I can't be bought either, and here's my reform platform. I think that basically what all three of these things in some respects have in common is is the real rebellion against the system in which corporations and, and billionaires influence politicians. In other words, that the, that the incentive structure becomes skewed by a political system um, inundated by economic influence, right? And so I think that the, a lot of this getting at a, the same kind of energy in the electorate, which, you know, rightfully or wrongfully, I think is, is a positive development. And, and for our purposes, I think that that does you know, portend good things for the potential for reform because people do want reform. They do want a government that works for everybody. Yeah, most people do. I'm not <laughs> sure right. that Exxon lobbyists want a government that works for everybody, but most people do. And I, I hope that many listeners do too. But okay, before we close today, Adam, we should say we have repeatedly excoriated the debate moderators 
for not asking a question about democracy reform, really any topic related to democracy reform, voting rights, uh, money in politics, campaign financing, uh, ranked choice voting, nothing for many years and dozens of debates. But Adam, you live tweeted all of the debates so far and in November you saw something different. So are we, are, are, are we giving a little bit of kudos here to end this podcast? We are, we are giving a little bit of kudos, yes. There was a debate question about voting rights, um, rightfully so. It was in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, the site of some of the most egregious voter suppression uh, in the country. Uh, and what followed was, uh, you know, a pretty mediocre exchange. It was not what I was looking for. There were a couple of good answers. Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, uh, spoke about reform. The conversation was unfortunately quickly derailed by Tulsi Gabbard, uh, who pivoted the conversation into a question of foreign policy, uh, which really was, was unfortunate as far as I'm concerned, because we finally got a democracy question and we really didn't even get, uh, more than a, you know, maybe two minutes plus of, of real support substantial reform um, discussion. But following that, uh, uh, Bernie did bring it back to reform and actually, you know, touted public the need for public financing of elections uh, and to make sure everyone um, could register and vote. That was great to bring it back to to- on the topic. And Elizabeth Warren used her closing to talk about uh, anti-corruption too. Uh, so the end of the debate, weirdly enough, actually got a little bit of, of reform. Uh, in it. And, and, and that, that is reason to celebrate, especially it would have been, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, it would have almost been a, a sick joke had in, in Georgia, they not even really discussed voting rights. Uh, but I will say the moderators need to do better. Um, I'll give them credit for asking that question, but it was the very last question at the debate that had the lowest viewership, if I'm correct, of all of them so far. And so I think what, we're, you know, we really need to see a democracy question featured more prominently than at the very end, and then the moderators let it get off off the rails uh, within within minutes. And and on that topic, you know, so we'll wait to see what the next uh, uh, debate shows. But I, I just want to say that you know, Jason, as as we were recording this, the uh, the the House just passed the the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act today, uh, and, and that is a, a wonderful thing to celebrate too. So as much as I'm criticizing the debate moderators for not allowing for a robust conversation about voting rights, progress is happening that we are seeing the House of Representatives pass a, a landmark bill. Um, this was independent of H.R. 1, the For the People Act, for uh, uh, legal reasons. They want to build the, the case for the reauthorization through more hearings. Uh, but you know, on the question of voting rights, I do really believe that that issue, whether or not they talk about it in the debates, is becoming increasingly salient for not just the Democratic elites, the, the party leaders and the people running, but also for the electorate. I think that on the issue of voting rights, you know, money in politics is, I still think, an open question. I think the trend is that way, but public financing clearly isn't salient across the entire country. But on the question of voting rights and the Voting Rights Act and some other things like automatic voter registration, uh, you know, the time is coming. The question is just how, how close we are, but we're, we're getting very close. Yeah. So on that note, Adam, on that very optimistic note, and and and, and indeed, the fact, I, I not sure I expected to give credit to debate moderators. Again, we did several episodes talking about how they have just shirked their duty. Things are changing, and maybe that's where we should end it. Um, okay, so that's a lot of recent news for this download, but uh, Adam, we'll talk to you soon, and I look forward to talking to you soon about our big 2019 year in review. That's going to be a fun one, so stay tuned for that. See you soon, Adam. See you soon.